so um, this is what we're doing. We're looking at uh, the book of Genesis. This is the third Sunday. We've looked at the story of uh, the creation of the world in Genesis 1, six days of creation. We've looked at the story of the Garden of Eden and uh, the Adam and Eve and the apple and the snake. We did that last week. And uh, this week, we're looking at this story in Genesis chapter 4, the story of um, Cain and Abel. Um, These are really important stories. They're really important stories to our lives today. They're foundational They're all legends. They're all myths. They didn't actually happen historically like this. But they are more important than historical fact. They are stories on which humanity is founded. And I'm going to demonstrate to you, I hope, why that is so important this morning. Uh, Next week, Eliza is going to come and speak to us. It's a soapbox next week. And Eliza's speaking. Eliza, wave or do something over there. There's Eliza. Right? which is brilliant. Eliza is a freelance journalist. She uh, freelances for The Guardian and various other uh, newspapers and magazines. And next week, she's going to be talking about um, the plight of uh, uh, African women, women from the continent of Africa a little bit, and about uh, the empowerment of women and various other things that she's passionate about. Did I make that wide enough? Yeah, that was wide enough for you to talk about. And all of those things next week follow on from this week. Yeah? So what we do when we're trying to plan our services, we don't, it's not like, hey, what should we talk about this week? There's a theme and there's a thread and one week builds to another. They're all interconnected. So Eliza next week, you should be here to listen to what Eliza has to say. On uh, Friday, this last Friday... I was invited to um, speak in Southwark Cathedral. There was a service that was held for, um, in the wake of um, the killings on London Bridge. And it was held for um, families of those who were killed and friends of those who were uh, massacred there. Eight people who died there on that bridge, um, getting on for a month ago now. And uh, the traders uh, in uh, the market, borough market, and, and police, etc., etc., etc. And as I was speaking uh, about the things that had uh, happened, uh, at the end of what I said, I told them this story. And I begin this morning by telling you this same story. There was an old Cherokee Indian, and he had a grandson. And one day, the old man sat down with his grandson because he wanted to teach him something that he could pass on to the next generations. And the old man said to his grandson, said, son, every one of us has two wolves within us. Wolves, of course, in uh, Cherokee Indian culture played an important part. Each one of us has two wolves within us. The grandson said to his grandfather, what are those wolves? The old man said, one is a good wolf and the other is a bad wolf. What's the bad wolf like, said the grandson. The bad wolf, said the old man. The bad wolf is pride. 
The bad wolf is jealousy. The bad wolf is anger. The bad wolf is exclusion. The bad wolf is oppression. The bad wolf is a clenched fist. Well, what's the good wolf? Said the young man to his grandfather. The good wolf is love. The good wolf is generosity. The good wolf is kindness. The good wolf is compassion. The good wolf is inclusion. The good wolf is an open hand. Then said the young man, which wolf wins? The old man kept silent, then looked at him and said this, the wolf that wins is the wolf we choose to feed. The wolf that wins is the wolf we feed. That is what this great story is about. Now I want to recap just a little bit. Um, On the first week, we talked about Genesis chapter 1 and the six days of creation. And we said, of course, uh, this is a recap for those of you who weren't here, you really do need to get hold of the podcast of these two previous Sundays and listen to them. Because Christians and others get very hung up on not understanding these great myths and these great stories. And of course, Genesis chapter 1 is about the six days of creation and people have been hung up on that forever because do I believe the Bible or do I believe science? Do I believe that God made the world in six days, 6,004 years ago? Or do I believe that the earth is billions of years old and life on planet earth is millions and millions of years old? Yesterday, I went with my little grandson on his birthday to um, SeaWorld down in Brighton and we saw some sharks and there was a notice that said... Uh, that sharks have been on earth for 400 million years. Now, to a 13-year-old kid that's grown up in a church where we're told that the world is made in six days and it was made in six days relatively recently, this is a crisis. People are not leaving churches because the songs aren't good or the band isn't good or the lighting or the PA isn't good. They're not leaving churches because if you only got a slightly better preacher, you know, he or she could come up with the goods. They're leaving churches by their, in, their, in their droves because there's a crisis of faith in the Bible. And there's a crisis of faith in the church itself. So we looked at the fact that Genesis chapter 1 is um, a hymn, it's a piece of liturgy, and it was taken from the Babylonian creation story which predates it, called Enuma Elish, Uh, uh, and Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation story, the Babylonians were the superpower of the day, and every culture comes up with big stories to justify what it's about, and to identify the values on which it's based. And the story, the Babylonian creation story, is about how the earth, uh, how the universe actually was created through violence. The gods fight one another. They hate one another. They go to war. And in the, in the deluge that follows, earth and the universe is accidentally created. And no humans matter. In fact, they're only made as an afterthought to serve as the slaves, the autonomous slaves of the gods who made all this mess. 
And Genesis 1 is written to retell that story, but to retell it in an incredible way and say, no, that's wrong. They take the story and they subvert the story to the writers of Genesis. They tell a story that's close enough to the original story so everyone identifies it and gets it, and then they subvert it, and it turns out they're not a gang of gods fighting. There's one God, and this God is love, and he purposely makes humanity in his image. And he makes not just one or two in his image, but he makes all people, all men and all women everywhere in his image, and he grants to them freedom. We are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. We are made in the image of God. Each one of us has autonomy. We are free. And that's a principle, says Genesis 1, that's built into the heart of the universe. Then we went on last week and we talked about the Garden of Eden. And we said that the Garden of Eden, it's impossible to really understand it unless you know that it's based on another story, which was called the Garden of God. And the Garden of God story, again, is really well known around the uh, near Middle East, the ancient near Middle East. The Garden of God story is all about a garden, a wonderful garden with trees, with jewels growing on. We even said, remember, those of you who were here, that there are remnants of this story in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel. They're quite big chunks of this other story that's like the Garden of Eden story, but different to the Garden of Eden story. And they're trees with jewels and diamonds on the ground. And there's a tree of life in the middle. And we said that the incredible thing about the Garden of Eden story is the jewels are gone. All of that kind of woohoo spectacular stuff is gone. And this is an ordinary garden, but it's a peaceful garden. And in the center of the garden is the tree of life, which doesn't, which figures, but isn't really key to the story. There's a new tree, a different tree, that never appears in any of the versions of the Garden of God story that we found elsewhere or are contained in other bits of the Bible. And this tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we said, if you remember, that in, because this is the first book in the Hebrew Bible, of all the interpretation of this book ever by the Hebrews, by the Jews in synagogues, no one has ever said, no Jew, no thinker, and this goes right, we have written evidence of this right back to the life of Jesus and beyond. No Jew ever believed that this story was about original sin and guilt and anger, the anger of God. They all taught that it's about the growing up of humanity. Both as individuals, we leave behind the garden and innocence and we become aware that we can do good or bad. We become aware of our decision-making responsibility. And it's about the growing up of individuals and humanity. We grow up into this huge responsibility. We are morally autonomous. We have freedom and we have to exercise it well. Now, you're probably wondering what all that has got to do with um, what we're going to talk about this morning. It's got a lot to do with it, so that's why I wanted to recap it. And then I said this, and you probably, some of you will think this is very technical. In fact, some of you have said to me, we don't need to do all this technical stuff. Oh, yes, we do, because otherwise we will remain biblically illiterate all our lives. We might be PhDs at biology, but we're not even there at SAT level two, biblically. 
There are five sources in the five books of Moses. We call them books of Moses, the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, etc., etc., Numbers, Deuteronomy. And there are five sources in those books. They weren't written as books. We've discovered that, that we d- this is well known. These sources are known as the Yal, J, E, D, P, and R, the redactor. Okay? And we know that the, these five books are knitted together from different sections. It's like, it's like when you're doing an essay for school or university. If you use one or two sources, that's called plagiarism. If you use five, that's called research. And what happens is all of those sources are brought together and they are interwoven. Now, this is going to be very important. This is going to be very important in a moment because we're going to come to one of the biggest mistakes that humanity has made. One of the very biggest, trust me, when we get to it, you'll say, it's big. And it's to do with this. These five sources are woven together. Genesis chapter 1 is a completely different source to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, the story of Adam and Eve. Some of us, we know it's different language, but it's called the Yahwistic, the Jeho- uh, Jehovahist source, the Yahwistic source, J, J, because Yahweh starts with J in German, and it was German scholars that first developed this understanding, a guy called Julian Wellhausen, in fact, in the 1800s. And uh, Genesis, chapter one, uh, Genesis chapter 2 and 3 use the name Yahweh for God. But Genesis chapter 1 uses uh, the more general name for God, uh, Elohim. And uh, I won't spend a lot of time on this because you should listen to last week. Um, But these sources are put together and woven together, interwoven. That's an important word. Remember the word interwoven. And this R, the redactor, we think was probably Ezra. If you read his book in the Old Testament, he arises at the same time as Nehemiah and they rebuild Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. And we think that what Ezra did is he took all these different stories that existed, some were were, um, verbal, narrative stories, folk stories, and some were already written down and he welded them all together to make sense. So we come on to this book, this story now, in Genesis chapter 4, which Jerry read to us. And it's really important that you understand those two principles that I've just set out in order to be able to get a grip of what happens here. Because this this story in uh, Genesis chapter 4 has been truly misunderstood in many, many ways. Now, Somebody said to me during the week, in fact, it was Andrew, who I can see there. He said, he said so we, we off, Andrew and I often talk, and he said, so we're doing the Old Testament now. Why are we doing the Old Testament? The reason we're doing the Old Testament, we're not doing the entire Old Testament, actually. We're going to do two, these three stories. Uh, um, Eliza's going to speak next week. We're going to do uh, two more stories from Genesis. We're going to do uh, the flood and the Tower of Babel. And then the last week of this is going to be questions about all of this stuff. You can ask any questions you like, then we're going to move on. But why is the Old Testament so important? Because you can't understand Jesus 
and what he was really saying. Unless you understand these foundational statements that are made in the Old Testament. Jesus was a teacher of Old Testament truth. He was a rabbi who came to teach us the way. The way of life. Jesus said, I am the way. The first Christians called themselves followers of the way. The way was Judaism. The way was Judaism. Judaism didn't reference itself as a religion, but a way of life built on the principles out of these these stories. So without understanding these stories, we can't really get a grip of what Jesus uh, was really talking about or his context at all. Now, I, uh, w- when we talked uh, two weeks ago about the world not being made in six literal days, um, but it's, uh, that's not what the passage is about. In fact, I said, you can believe the world's made in six literal days if you want to. You really can. On one, one moment, why, why, not, why six days? You know, why not six seconds? Six nanoseconds? You can believe that if you want to, but the point is that Genesis chapter 1 isn't about that. And it's not saying that. Now, one or two people said to me, yeah, 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 but, you know, we've got to hang on to the Bible. Yeah, we have. So we have to free it from wrong readings. And then last week, uh, we talked about the Garden of Eden, and I said that that story, too, has been used in all sorts of of abusive ways. I talked about one of them. I'd been somewhere in America the week before, and when I heard someone talking about God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and it was used as an argument against uh, same-sex relationships. Well, It's fine if someone wants to argue against same-sex relationships, but to do it on the basis of an understanding of the story of Adam and Eve is just sheer ignorance. And people go, oh no, I'm free to believe what I like. Well, let's look at this story then. Let's look at this story. Because you will begin to see just how dangerous this wrong reading is. In this story, there are two brothers. They are the children of Adam and Eve. Um, And uh, they are Cain and Abel. And uh, Cain is the the tiller of soil. He's a farmer and he grows stuff. And his brother, young brother, Abel, he um, looks after flocks, sheep. He's a shepherd. And they both decide, for some unknown reason, because the story doesn't tell us, that they are going to sacrifice, bring sacrifices to God. God's not called for them or asked for them in the story, but they decide they will bring these sacrifices. And Cain brings uh, some of the fruit of the soil. And Abel brings his, uh, some of his flock the firstborn of his flock. And for some reason, God finds the sacrifice of Abel acceptable, but the sacrifice of Cain, the fruit of the soil, unacceptable. And he tells Cain about that. And Cain gets very upset and jealous of his brother and murders his brother. And as a result, Cain is banished from the land and sent to the land of Nod. 
and a curse is put on, on him and a mark is put on him. Now, for people who read the Old Testament very literally, this story has problems in it. For all of us, it has problems in it because when Cain... Uh, wanders away with this mark on him he's scared if you read the story again that Jerry read to us uh, Cain complains to God and says but if you banish me from here I might be killed people will be out there to kill me and so God says well I'll put a mark on you to protect you and then it says that he goes off to the land of Nod and there he takes a wife well If there were only two people on earth, Adam and Eve, and they've only ever had Cain and Abel, where did the wife come from? And why was was, um, Cain so worried about these people who might kill him? Who were they? And how did they get there? Do you see, when we read the Bible wrongly, we cause ourselves all sorts of problems. But there are other problems, and and there's not time to examine those. But what we do know about this story, and trust me, this is not just me saying this, is we know about this story, it's well accepted for the last 200 years, that this story is the remnants of a much bigger story that no longer exists. We know that the the story, it doesn't tell us enough about itself. We know that it's the remnant that's included in Genesis by the redactor who weaves all this together from a bigger story that doesn't exist. But actually, that doesn't matter because you then say, well, what's this saying to us in the context in which it's interwoven with what's gone before. Because it's obviously picking up on what's gone before. Now, if that's all slightly confusing to you, we do it ourselves all the time. So if I say to you, Scrooge, all I've got to say is, like, don't be a Scrooge. And you get the whole thing. Because we all know the Christmas carol story. We know Dickens and we know Ebenezer Scrooge. If I say ghost of Christmas, you know, we got to, you know, five years hence, what's the ghost of Christmas past, the Christmas present, Christmas future? If I say we ignore the tiny Tims in our society, we all know what I'm talking about. That's exactly what's happening here. There's a big story that's well known, just like the Garden of God story, which we have now found, And the Babylonian story, which we've now found, we know there's a big story which we don't know, but we know enough about this to know what it means in context. Let me tell you about two ways it's been understood out of context by people who take a literalist view. If you're still there thinking, oh no, we should take it literally, you you know, don't try and confuse my head, I just want to take the Bible simply. Well, there's two ways in which it's been taken wrongly. The first, annoying The second, awful. The annoying one is that people have said, ah, this story is all about animal sacrifice. The thing is that Cain brought the fruit of the soil, you know, wheat. And that's unacceptable to God because what he wanted was animal sacrifice. And it shows that God needs sacrifice. And that in the end, he'd need Jesus to sacrifice his life. Well, that's reading so much into this story 
It's just dishonest with the text. But here's a deeper thing. The mark of Cain has been taught through the centuries to be the fact that God turned Cain black. And the theology of segregation and the ins- of black people from white people in Christian tradition and the theology of slavery grows right out of this story. It's called the curse and the mark of Cain. And it was taught across America, for instance, that all black people bear the curse of the mark of Cain. And that is why they will journey in loneliness. And that slavery is part of that curse because in the story God doesn't condemn Cain to death but lets him wander. And to fill it all in, because it also became the guiding theology of apartheid in South Africa, um, there's a story which, which is part of the flood story, but we never deal with all this, so I might as well say it now. It, after the flood, um, uh, uh, one of... Um, Uh, Noah's sons, who's called Ham, uh, is cursed uh, by his father, Noah. Noah curses his... uh, Noah and... I'm going to start telling the story if I'm not careful. You have to read it. Noah and his son, Ham, fall out. And as a result, Ham uh, Ham gets cursed. And uh, uh, Ham's son is called Canaan. And Canaan is the one who receives the curse. And it was taught, though there's no, this doesn't arise from the Bible, it was taught that one of the sons of Cain, who was now cursed with the mark of blackness, marries um, uh, one of the sons of uh, Canaan, and that's how you get the Canaanites, who are black people, And that's why Israel could drive them from the land. And all black people inherit this same thing. And that's why white people could enslave black people. And if you believe that this is all a piece of ancient history, it was only in 1995 that the Southern Baptist Convention, the biggest denomination outside of Catholicism in America, repented of that. Only in 1995. And it took the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa into this millennium to repent of that theology. So, if anyone thinks we can just read the Bible just like that instead of studying it, wake up. Wake up to the fact that you cannot go on in this kind of babyish understanding that even gets angry at people who come along with a deeper grasp of the Bible. Let's take the Bible seriously, not literally, because it can do a whole lot of frigging damage in the hands of people who do just that with it. These stories are foundational to humanity, all humanity. They're great myths, great legends, and they teach us great truths. And we've got to work with them and work with them really well. So, 
What is this story actually teaching? It turns out it's teaching the opposite, which will bring us all the way back to the old Cherokee Indian in just a moment as I finish. This story is repeating the truths that have just been taught by Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Genesis 1 is telling us this. Everyone, every man, every woman is made in the image of God. Every man, every woman is God's representative on earth. Not just the king, not just the special ones. Everyone is chosen. Everyone has a mark and the mark is that we are in the image of God. And in week one of this, we said, therefore, the way I act and I respond all of the time is a matter of my responsibility. We are made in the image of God and we are his representatives. Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that story is teaching us simply this, as we looked at last week. It's teaching us that we are autonomous and we have free will. That this whole thing that was invented about how everything's predestined and we have no choice and some are predestined for heaven and some are predestined for hell and there's this original sin idea, this has nothing to do with these stories whatsoever. Don't just take my opinion, read about it. This story is saying that we all have free will, we are autonomous, we make choices and we live with the consequences of the choices that we choose to make. That's what we were talking about last week. What is this story doing? This story is reinforcing that point. Because you see, the idea of the autonomy, the moral autonomy of humanity is a thoroughly revolutionary and unique one. In the myths that went around, in, the, in the, the Garden of God story, the quest was for eternal life. It wasn't around the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. As I said last week, the whole of humanity was concerned about immortality, not morality. The stories of Babylon, etc., etc., were all about immortality, the quest by humanity for immortality. But the Genesis accounts introduce a new idea, the idea that morality is more important than immortality. The way I live, the way we behave, the way we respond, the choices we make, the everyday little decisions, these are all moral choices, big moral choices. Is that, does that make sense? So, let's uh, move on from there. So this, is, this story is about a revolution. And this story is unique. And this story is about moral responsibility. So what happens in the story, though we've lost much of it, we know by comparing it with chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis and, and prizing out the language, we know what's happening. In the story, if you re read it again, what happens is Cain comes along with his offering. He comes along with his offering to God. And it simply says, he took some fruit of the soil and he offers it. But then, 
Abel takes the best, the firstborn of his flock, and he offers them. And what is clear here, what is clear in the language, is that Cain's offering is just an outward act. But Abel's offering is an inner conviction. His worship comes from the inside out, and it's just not a surface thing. It's not some uh, surface thing he's going through. It's a thing of absolute inner conviction. So, there are some principles to draw out. And then we're going to move on and do something else. Kate's going to come back. First in this story, it's really interesting. There is no instruction to worship. This is before the Ten Commandments. This is before you shall have no other gods except me. This is before all of that. This is before do not murder. There are no rules. There are no rules at all. Except that you have choice and the consequences of eating the apple are going to, of, of, of doing wrong, of being self-centered, of living with a fist, not an open hand, are bad. So the first principle here is that there is no instruction to worship. But Cain and Abel live in a world where there's an inner inclination to worship. It's innate within them. It's, it's a push within them, a drive within them. The second principle is this. That the individual is the basic unit that God works with, even though we're part of community. And these two brothers come to God and they are responsible for their actions. So there's this desire to worship that's innate, that's instilled, that's inborn in every human being ever. That's what this story is saying. Everyone is made to worship. We're created to worship. That each one of us has to take individual responsibility for the way we live our lives. We cannot simply blame someone else. We are responsible. And the third principle is this. That even the first act of worship recorded in the Bible becomes corrupted. This is the first act of worship. The very first act of worship recorded in the Bible becomes, in the end, the first murder. Even worship can be twisted, and it's still twisted, isn't it? Worship is twisted into do what I tell you or else. Worship is twisted into a set of rules and regulations that bind other people up and take away their freedom. Worship is twisted into bring me your money and you will be healed, you will be free. Church has often been turned into a form of repression. Even the first act of worship, the purest motive on earth, gets twisted. And here's the fourth and final principle that leaps out of this passage. And it's simply this. The sanctity of every single life. For in the middle of this and at the end of this is really simply this equation. 
Cain says to God, when God says, where's your brother? Cain says to God in Genesis 4, verse 9, am I my brother's keeper? And God answers and says, in verse 10, what you have done, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. We are our brother's keeper. That's what this passage is is saying. We all have autonomy. We can all make choices. We all choose to do what we want with our money, with our lives, with our talents, with our freedom. You can choose anything you like this week. I can choose anything I like this week. I can choose any response to any person that comes into my mind. But a biblical principle set out in these great legends at the beginning of the Bible is we are our brother's keeper. And God says this, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. We do not know what the mark was that God put on Cain. We just don't know because we we might in a hundred years, if someone digs up some tablets somewhere of the story that went with it, we might know about more about what the mark was. We might know more about who Cain's Uh, wife was. We might know where the land of Nod was, but none of these things do we know right now. But they're not included in the story in Genesis because they're unimportant to the point that the writer's making. Do you get that? What is important are these two principles. We are our brother's keeper and our brother's blood cries out to to God from the ground. Summing it up in this way, to use an American phrase, homicide instead of murder. Every act of homicide is an act of fratricide. Fratricide is the murder of your brother or your sister. And what this passage is saying is every violent act, every act of murder, every act of oppression of any human person, is an act against God. A crime against another person is a crime against God. When I spoke in the cathedral on Friday, it was originally intended that this should be about the uh, eight people who died on the bridge. But in actual fact, we extended the scope of the service to include those who've died in the three other terrorist uh, happenings, Finsbury Park and uh, at Westminster Bridge and at the Manchester Arena. And the cathedral chose, and I was really glad I was going to do this, but then they wrote to me and said, we want to do this. Every victim that died in the Grenfell Tower Block Why? Because every crime against any human being is an act of fratricide. It's a crime against a brother or a sister. We are our brother and sister's keeper. We are responsible. The revolution in Genesis is humanity is made in the image of God, not the slaves of the gods. The revolution is that the God of the universe is one and God and he is love. 
The revolution is that you are made in his image, not just some fat cat sitting in parliament or a palace somewhere. That is the revolution. But the revolution is equally that with this, with this great privilege comes responsibility. We are all God's representatives and the way we live our lives and the way we treat one another matters. So can you see that the way this passage was used by people to... to to put a gap between white people and black people. And the way it was used to justify the, the slave conditions they want and the capitalist drive for that, that they wanted, was a manipulation of the text. And we'll always end up with manipulations of the Bible if we don't take it seriously. We can't just read the Bible text. We have to study it. That's why slinging out Bible verses all over the place doesn't prove one thing or the other. All it proves is that we've got a good memory. What does it mean? How do we interpret it? What is it saying? How does it challenge me? So I leave you with this. We are our brother's keeper. And our brother's blood always cries out to God against us if we become part of the regime that lets it be spilled. Out of these verses truly understood arises not just a cry of protest, but a commitment to work for a society that is different, that will include, that will not leave behind. The young grandson said to his grandfather, which wolf wins? The good one or the bad one? And the grandfather said, the one you feed. Amen.